Welcome to Connecting the Dots, the podcast where we share our stories from the battlefield of consulting. I'm your host, Johnny Hill. Hey, I'm Graham. I head up the data science and analytics practice here at Xperia. Hey, I'm Kareem Jamal, senior architect and talent dev lead. Hey, I'm Bruno Bariso. I'm senior developer here on Xperia. Today, we're discussing how to gain and keep user trust when building software that incorporates things like machine learning, predictive analytics, or recommendation engines, along with some of the common roadblocks that we've run into when working to gain user trust. Trust me, you won't want to miss this. So my first question is, why is establishing trust so important, especially when it comes to recommendation engines and predictive analytics? There are a few reasons it's really important to build user trust early on in developing systems, especially driven by modern data science practices like machine learning, because primarily it's really easy to surface um, recommendations or predictions that are either erroneous or, or incorrect. And what we've seen over the past five, eight, 10 years is that as you incorporate these more sophisticated algorithms, recommendation types and interface methods for, for interacting with those um, algorithms, the outputs they make, the recommendations, predictions they generate are increasingly opaque because the systems are can be fairly opaque without uh, specialized treatment and, and careful consideration in developing those systems. So super important to have the, the trustworthiness, the bias reduction, all these methods in mind during design and development of these systems. So when you say opaque, you mean the data can sometimes be cryptic or hard to parse and understand. Can, can you walk me through what you mean by that? The systems themselves make recommendations based on learned information from data. And it's the learning process, the training process there that keeps these systems uh, uninterpretable in some cases. So whereas in the past, we were using systems that said, if applicant makes less than 50,000 US dollars per year, reject small business loan. Now what we're saying is, well, hey, algorithm, we're not going to tell you those characteristics that we want you to consider. We're going to give you all of the available information that we have, which, by the way, in many cases is biased. And we're going to allow you, algorithm, to tell us what those characteristics are and which ones are most important in the decision-making process. Deriving that information, allowing the algorithms, allowing the systems to derive that information on their own means that we aren't always sure which characteristics are most important. And that's what I mean by opaque. The systems are opaque. It is hard to go in after the fact and understand why decisions are being made unless you, you do indeed consider that carefully and early on and, and design systems that are um, explicitly uh, designed to output information related to some of that explanatory reasoning. Why are we making the decisions we're making? And a big component of that is, is of course, the back end, the math, the algorithms. But the second biggest component is the interaction of users with those systems. 
And so I'm interested actually to get your opinion, Johnny, on, on kind of how we have started to design our systems to allow users to perturb these systems, to ask questions of these systems and, and surface the explanatory reasoning behind them. Yeah. Yeah. We, we've started playing with a lot of different ways to do that. I mean, the more traditional ones usually involve, you know, you provide a data table with all the raw information and let users make queries and drill into it and see, okay, what's feeding these results. That's, you know, kind of the, the first element we'll, we'll try to incorporate, but getting into more of the machine learning aspect of things, we've started playing with more approaches that involve more like a chatbot approach where you can ask the system and say, Hey, show me, you know, show me all of the results that meet these criteria. Show me, you know, the last uh, most applicable um, results for, for this kind of, you know, thing I may be looking for and kind of creating it as more of a conversation with the system where instead of me trying to, you know, I need to know how to look for what I need, kind of making it more of a conversation with the system to, to bring forward those results. And I think even that process helps with the, the trust element. Because I mean, part of it is users aren't going to want to use a system that's slow and sluggish and hard to navigate and having something as simple as like, ask me a question, what do you need? You know, making it like the Googleification of a system mm -hmm. where it's just ask what you need and I'll bring it. And you can assess from there if that seems accurate. You know, that's another element like the human in the loop giving feedback and asking the user, does this look right? Like, is my assessment of this correct? All of those elements can be helpful. Interestingly, you bring up the point that potentially you don't even need to explain anything. You, you, in some cases, all you need to do is provide more outputs, mm -hmm. more context, right? If users can interact with a variety of um, contextual information as they look through, as they uh, discover whether or not they, they believe the recommendation you're making, the system is making rather, um, it gives them enough information in some cases to make those decisions. And it's, it's a shame that, uh, you know, the podcast format here doesn't allow for, for visual uh, results. So we can, we could show some of this stuff. We have it on our website. Go check out experiwink.com. I don't, unfortunately, I don't have the exact link here, but <laughs> you can navigate to some of these examples and you can see exactly what Johnny's talking about in the, contextual surfacing of information alongside what I would say are the more modern techniques related to bias reduction and related to explicit explanatory reasoning that takes that rich contextual information. Like for instance, in my loan approval example earlier, if we expose to our, um, to our loan officers examples of loans that are similar, that the bank has approved and, and not approved in the past, it does give some of the information the loan officer needs to understand whether they should make a yes or no decision based on the recommendation from the system and based on the, the applicant's credentials. And also there are methods, the, the new modern methods I just mentioned, that allow some perturbation of the inputs like, oh, what if our applicant made $5,000 more a year? Or what if our applicant had a FICO score that was 10 points lower? In order to challenge the system and, and indeed to, to hopefully allow that user to build a little bit of trust mm -hmm. as they play the what if game, right? Making it more of a conversation between the system and the user rather than just here, let me show you what's correct. 
totally. system is providing context so that you can assess. And one thing to keep in mind is these systems will only be as good as the data that's being fed in that they are uh, working on and being trained with, right? So when, when it comes to the trustworthiness factor, you have to factor in that you have to hold these new AI algorithms to the same sort of bar that you've held you know, humans in the past, right? So if the humans have been skewed or biased, well, you know what, the, these new algorithms are going to be as well, at least early on, until we figure out how to get away from that. Uh, the expectation yeah, the that these algorithms will be just perfect and better than humans, like right out of the gate, is not realistic. Yeah, it's interesting. It's, uh, that's a good way of describing it, Kareem. Like the, the system, the promise of these systems in the in popular media is they will be better than humans. We will get amazing results, whatever. In the minds of data scientists, I would say by and large, the expectation is that we build systems that service users with human level performance. That's the ultimate end goal. And as you mentioned, human level performance in reality is skewed, right? The, the small business loan approval algorithm is trained on decades of actual loan officers operating these banks and disproportionately not approving loans to women or, or uh, applicants of minority background. So by the standard metrics that data scientists often generate, for instance, if we look back historically and use this algorithm, did we come up with the same approval recommendation that a human would have? Often the systems perform wonderfully, human level performance, right? But as you say, it's that, that human performance is flawed. It's skewed. It's not how we want our businesses to operate, right? Yeah. And also thinking about that, the, the bias on the data and uh, how to generate trust in the user. I was thinking if a prediction that didn't fit a bias on the user will be trustworthy. So if, I, if the prediction didn't confirm any of my previous thoughts, will I trust that? You know what I mean? Definitely. I don't know. I don't know what the answer is. <laughs> yeah, it's it's almost like can you use the can you leverage the recommendation in the system and like I think this is one of the other elements I was thinking about. Like you can encourage trust by showing your work. Like here's the background data. Here's you know where the like identifying and saying here are the biases that we identified. Here's why they're not reliable as a you know. A factor to make this recommendation or this decision. We've identified this as a bias. We've done our homework and we're showing these are all the factors that, we, that we're taking into consideration to kind of balance out that bias and say that's not the only factor to take into consideration. You know, so you can kind of maybe encourage users to who may already have those preconceived notions or biases by showing, hey, here's all the other factors you might not be thinking about. You know, yes, this, this person may be from this background or have this kind of history, but they also have, you know, these other uh, elements that would make them a likely candidate for this role you're looking at. But to Bruno's point, it's interesting to think about the, the, the fact that a small business loan approval officer has a particular way of thinking. And even if you were to show them a result that was not what they expected, yet certainly that, that can destroy user trust. Right. However, if we were to show them, sort of combining your point with Bruno's point here, the individual characteristics that you'd want to 
um, that you'd want change in order to make that approval a, a yes instead of a no, then over time, perhaps we can alter users' behavior. But I don't, I, I think, I do think that that, that goes against user trust, right? If you're right. trying, <laughs> if you're explicitly trying to alter your user behavior. Right. Yeah, it's, it's, it's like an interesting conundrum because you don't want to manipulate users, but you also don't want to misinform them by providing information that you know is wrong just because they'll like it. And there's also a third axis to consider, which is why are we developing these systems in the first place? Right. Typically, we're doing this so we can make money as businesses. And that profit or revenue axis is very important. The only reason we're able to build these systems in the first place is because we're, we're making money using them. So there are certain specialized cases where the, the two axes of sort of ethics and profits do align. For instance, loan approvals, right? If you're approving more qualified loan applicants that have been traditionally because of, of bad human behaviors, um, underrepresented in the approvals category, but are fully qualified loan applicants and should be given a loan, that's more ethical and more profitable simultaneously. Right. Well, yeah, I think on that note, there's also like, there's a balance that you need to hit between rigidity and flexibility in, in the system. Cause there's also like examples of, you know, pre machine learning where I may have a loan applicant who you know, initially is rejected, but then I, you know, they come into the office and talk to me and say, Hey, here's the case I have to make. Could you please make an exception? I say, Oh yeah, that makes total sense. Thank you for bringing that to my attention. Like you need to have some element for, for that as well. I feel like in the machine learning where there may be a factor that was missed, or there may be elements there that weren't taken into consideration that uh, could be flexible. Yeah, definitely. And I think where you're heading here is some of the stuff that we've been building over the past couple of years to incorporate user feedback and, right. and parts of that domain expert workflow into encoding that domain knowledge and that um, rich representation of the workflow into the algorithm itself, which is, uh, which is now possible, right? This was, this was a long, complex, heavy duty, slow workflow before the advent of modern machine learning. But now what we can do is we can use explicit and implicit user feedback in the use of these systems to retrain them in a way that is consistent with user behavior. Now, you have the same problem, right? If you have, uh, if you have a racist loan officer, the system can indeed learn those biases from that person. Right. But what, what you're striving to do is to is to force your system over time to get closer and closer to the behaviors of your hopefully ethical users. And, and the way to get that is sort of the human in the loop, right? Where you present the data, you're transparent. So the, the only humans can tell the algorithm, hey, this is not a direct uh, bias, but it is an indirect bias, right? So take zip code, for example, uh, right? Yeah, zip code seems harmless enough, but no, it's actually an indirect bias of race, right? That's just how things are um, in demographics and stuff. And so, hey, if you see that uh, zip code plays uh, uh, has a heavy weight in your algorithm, well, that's, that's a bias right there that you should be aware of and uh, try to fix that and reduce its impact. Right. Yeah, the beauty is that you can, by, by making this decision 
this sort of decision recommendation workflow quantitative, you can now explicitly correct uh, behaviors that you don't want in the system. So if, if you were only using human beings to do loan approvals, you would likely con continue along the path that you've continued on for the past 100 years of business operations. But today, what we have is the ability to quantify exactly what you say, Kareem, implicit um, injection of fanatical behavior. So if you were to go back over historical data set of however many years and look at the output recommendations, approval, not approval, from the algorithm, you could see explicitly that zip code is proportionately affecting um, members of socioeconomic backgrounds, members of racial backgrounds, members of gender backgrounds. You, you might, and you can, I know because we've done this, you can find that stuff in the data. Whereas if you didn't have some explicit mechanism for decision, it's some quantitative mechanism for decision making, it would be much more difficult to discover that behavior. And, uh, you know, keeping in mind the asterisk of the human, right? So if the human uh, whose data this is based on uh, is racist and they see the data and they're like, oh yeah, this looks right because it just goes with their way of thinking, right? Well, now you just reinforce that racist behavior in the algorithm, yes. which is yes. back to the, our point of, you know, hey, it'll only be as good as humans are right now until we can get it to a better place. And it also gives you the ability to your point of having external or third-party auditing of the, of the decision-making process, right? Third-party may be someone internal, maybe regulator, maybe external, whatever that is. It depends on what domain you're, you're writing these algorithms in. But I, I'm an optimist in this space. Every, there are a lot of naysayers and the AI is going to take my job, people. What I have to say here is, again, because we can see the behaviors of these systems explicitly, we are able to enable not only ourselves, but also the checks and balances inside and outside of organizations to correct for these problems. And unlike what people think, there is not just one sort of optimal loan approval algorithm, right? There's so many factors that go into play based on the size of your business. Are you big or small? There are other things you need to concentrate on. So there is not one perfect thing, uh, which is why the problem is, you know, is even more compounded. You have to take care of all these biases and skewness and all these other things to make sure your data is trustworthy. But then you have these other sort of quality attributes of your business, right? The context sensitive stuff that also come into play. And then, then with all of that combined, you need to have it evaluated with third parties and other stuff to make sure it is trustworthy. Yeah, and pivoting back, I know we've talked a lot about kind of the behind the scenes elements of trust, but I'm curious, say, say you've gone through all of the hard work to make sure that your information is trustworthy and is accurate and is free of any bias as much as you're in control there's still an element there. Well, how do you prove your trustworthiness to your users? Like what are the factors that may encourage users to be hesitant or not quite trust your recommendations that your system is making? Yeah, it's tough. And there are an infinite number of ways of doing that. And what we have been doing recently is to provide those, uh, not just metrics, but um, interactive, visualizations and slider, you know, time sliders and feature manipulators to the user to allow them again to sort of 
play with the decision that's being made and understand whether it makes sense in, in the context that it's being made in. It's typically what that looks like the end user is a full dashboard with these interactive controls that allow you in real time to play with that algorithm. So we have a whole design library of, of design patterns for these types of controls based on the use case and based on the algorithm that is being used. But on the back end, it's actually quite a bit simpler. There are several categories, in fact, of the not only bias reduction methods, but, but also exploratory methods for, for that decision-making rationale. These are things like, if there are data scientists listening, there, there are obvious things like Shapley values, surfacing some of these things, allowing users to shift inputs to the decision-making process, typically machine learning models in today's world. Uh, it goes all the way through sort of data restructuring, oversampling of minority classes. You can expose all this stuff to your end users and depending on who they are, you can give them quite a bit of control because in, in the case of our customers, many times they are expert users and they know very deeply, they know more deeply their domain than this algorithm does. Um, interesting, Johnny, to think about the case where you're not necessarily exposing this information to expert users, but to intermediates or, or novice users. Think, I don't know, think e-commerce of some sort. Mm-hmm. Is there a way to sort of adjust recommendations that are being made. If you like it, whatever, if you, if you purchased this dress, you also might like this jumper type of thing. Right. Um, yeah. I think you see that because, because that's one of the problems with, oh, well, we have all this information to prove that our recommendations are based off of real, legitimate, reliable data. Oftentimes, like depending on the user, that's going to be overwhelming and you, you can't realistically show them all of that. Cause it's just like, I don't even know where to start. So I think you see kind of slimmed down versions of that where, yeah, thinking like on Amazon, oh, you bought these new AirPods, you might want to buy a case for them, that kind of a thing. Um, You'll often have other systems like you see this on anytime you order something on Uber Eats or whatever, you get the, hey, did you have a good experience or a bad experience? Mm -hmm. And taking every opportunity to gather feedback from users and saying like, hey, are we correct in our assessment that this was a good experience for you? Are we correct in in our assessment that, this recommendation is something you want to see and kind of asking users to kind of verify, Hey, are we, is this actually helpful or not? Uh, that that's a delicate line to kind of balance on because you don't want to become frustrating and annoying to the point where you're always badgering users for, Hey, Hey, do you like this? Do you like this? Cause then they're just going to, you know, start trolling you and saying, no, I don't like anything. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a real danger, but um, yeah, they're, they're kind of, considerations you need to make for yeah graham like you were saying the the audience uh that you're catering to and the desired outcome like do you want them to use your system more do you want them to simply trust that your system is coming up with better recommendations than the competitor um whatever it may be do you just want them to have a good experience and it needs to be progressive too right in both senses so hey, early on, I'm just getting used to a new system. So don't give me too much information. And I, as I get more into it, I want to learn more about the details that what went into your decisions, why you're recommend, recommending this to me. Or the other way around, hey, early on, I have mistrust of you and uh, convinced me, right? So you give them a lot more information. And then over time, they believe you. And so then they start, you know, toning down those notifications and things right. like that saying, okay, you know what you're doing. Like, 
Amazon will recommend something to me now. It's like, okay, yeah, you probably know what's best better than I do. Oh yeah, I forgot I bought these things three months ago and I can use like another supply of this. Okay, sure, you know, send it to me. Yeah, that's that's interesting. We we're working on a system right now and have done this a couple of times in the past where we tune not only the outputs and the recommendations to the user, as you say, Kareem, stop showing me so many notifications. It's it's working and I just want to use it, but also the decision-making process itself. In particular, we're working for a hydroelectric generator right now who has expert users interacting with a system that is surfacing recommendations about which dams to use to generate power, which generators within each dam. Early on in that system's deployment, those so-called hydrocontrollers are very critical and they must see all of the explanatory reasoning, as you say, Kareem. Show me why that, th- that decision's being made. And because of that, we are implementing this system mostly early on using deterministic algorithms. So business rules engines explicitly, if your power is lower than X at this generator, you must turn this generator on. However, quite elegantly, I I think is, is what we've seen over the past few systems of doing this is the ability to, to turn this knob, slowly inject more and more recommendations that are surfaced by stochastic, by a, like a machine learning algorithm and replace those original recommendations by the, by the business rules engine. And it's almost like a single user AB test, right? You, you make all these recommendations and over time you start rolling in this sort of canary deployment of machine learning model and make sure that the user is accepting those recommendations with as much frequency as they were of the business rules engine. And what we've seen in the past and what we're hoping for here as well is that as you roll that machine learning algorithm into place over this sort of traditional business rules engine, you actually get higher acceptance, even though the user doesn't know or, or care that the decision-making algorithm on the back end has changed. I think that is a, a fascinating and powerful way of ensuring that you are building systems which have realistic performance. Yes, we were talking about human level performance earlier. It's, it's a way, I think it's a way to sort of get closer to human level performance and help these people just eliminate a lot of the chaff of their day-to-day boring workflows that they have to deal with every day, right? In this case, hydrocontrollers. Every morning I have to come in and make sure that the set point is dialed to three megawatts or whatever. Now they can, that decision will increasingly be made automatically in an automated way, again, using machine learning algorithm. And over time, as you say, Kareem, they will stop, they would just disallow the notification. It just works every day. And let me just go focus on the more interesting parts of my job. I was wondering, um... How much of that trust that you, you we were commenting is based on the users knowing us as, as a provider? So, for example, we comment about uh, Amazon and Google or, or big companies. So when, when they recommend something, I personally tend to be a little defensive at the first, depending on the deepness of the, of the recommendation. <laughs> usually don't pay attention, but Twitter, for example, I use Twitter a lot. 
And every time that I have a notification, I ask myself, okay, why, why I'm getting this? How, how, what's the path from my behavior on the application to, to this content? So, um, yeah, I, I, I've been thinking about this from the beginning of the conversation. So, um, for us as a, as contractors, how much of this trust is based on our previous uh, interaction with the client, and how much is just purely from um, the system that we are building? Well, it's in Twitter's best interest not to let you know why those decisions are being made. They're selling. <laughs> I mean, seriously. I mean, their their business model is to show you content that makes you buy more stuff or to show you, yeah. I mean, not necessarily in Twitter's case, or to show you content that makes sure you're, you, you, they are collecting the right pieces of data from you to sell to advertisers. That isn't necessarily the case in a lot of the work that we do specifically, Bruno, right? But we, we work, we tend to work for companies who are serving expert users. Those users, we're not trying to monetize those users. What we're trying to do is, give them total control and then slowly kind of alleviate some of the control so that they can choose not to take that control anymore. So imagine like Twitter did give you all of the explanatory reasoning. Today mm -hmm. we're showing you this tweet. The, the tweet list has your, uh, what do they call it? Page or whatever is stack ranked by the highest number of, categorical advertisers related to this content right yeah early on you would say i never want to see that stuff again <laughs> just just stack racket by time or whatever but in yeah. the case where you the the product is the outcome of your work instead of the monetization of your data that explanatory reasoning is more like show me small business loans that have categories of applicants that have traditionally been underserved uh, under apply uh, uh, approved mm -hmm. and only show me those top uh, the top part of that list with the highest um, gross income or something like that so that you can indeed choose to evaluate those loans on on um, on the merits of their applicants rather than just on the historical operations of your of your yeah. existence. Yeah, I think that for sure, giving control over the system will will found a lot of trust. I mean, if you can play with something and see how it behaves, it gives you clues about how it will behave in the future. So you have trust on, on what to expect. So that, that's that's pretty a pretty direct way to to get to make the user trust the system. But I was wondering before you reach that point, how do you make the user trust, I guess, your solution based on, on machine learning, for example, is something that you cannot really um, be sure about until you have something deployed on training it and a whole project going on. Um, so how much of the, of the trust is based on, on just um, your relation with the client? And, and, and um, well, something that, that I was thinking about when you were describing um, the approach about digging on the data. Um, Something that I think I do when I speak with a client is just trying to put myself on his shoes and trying to just think about, okay, his person is trying to, to achieve A, B, and C. How, how I can make that happen easily for them? So something about controlling the, the, the system and see how it behaves is for sure immediate for me. I mean, this is the first thing I will like to do 
to, to understand how the system works. But I think that also make it a good relation with the, with the client and, and, and make them trust you is a big part of, of the success of, of the system. Yeah, you really yeah. have to start small, right? Just show small wins, small progress, right? So as much as we talk about, you know, Google and, you know, Twitter and stuff and trustworthiness, uh, there's also the factor that if, you know, Apple or Google ask for my credit card number to purchase something or Amazon, right? I'm more likely to give it than I am some brand I don't know yet, right? So there's just you sort of have to get your foot in the door and then have deliver small wins in the correct approach, right? To um, really gain that trust over time, as you're saying, Bruno, um, to, you know, be able to do more. Uh, in early on, no one's going to trust you if they don't know you or haven't seen your solutions or things like that. Um, and there's already a big mistrust problem that we're dealing with this, in, this, in this industry, just from Previous, uh, you know, things like books have been written about AI and the mistrust about it, right? So in their people's heads, there's already a notion of AI will come and take over uh, and, you know, get rid of everyone's jobs and enslave humanity and things like that. So (laughs) there's already a big, like, yeah, stigma there about, uh, you know, AI is out to get us uh, instead of the, the positive side where it's like, hey, it's here to help enrich our lives and make things easier. And so it's already an uphill battle that we're dealing with. And early on, um, we've had some experiments that have gone, you know, not too great. As in, uh, was it Microsoft or one of the other big players let out uh, an uh, AI bot uh, that was just reading Twitter and things like that, just to learn and train itself. Oh yeah, those, those never go well. Yeah, and the end result was that that bot ended up being a racist, sexist algorithm because that's the content that got out there. Now, there's also a thing uh, that we sort of are learning that a lot of these social media companies prioritize negative media because that gets people angry and engaged and it's more profitable for them, which is not the subject of this uh, episode. So we won't get into that, but basically, the things that have happened have sort of created this hole, this ditch uh, for AI that now, you know, we're slowly trying to crawl out of. And so being able to gain that trust is going to be a slower process. Uh, but, you know, you know, one step at a time, uh, and, you know, one small win um, to, you know, sort of get over those, uh, those hills. Yeah, I, I totally buy it. I agree. I mean, there is a negative sentiment in the public eye about these types of systems, but it's also important to, to recognize, and I, I don't know what our audience demographic is here, but those not all that familiar with the space might be surprised to know that these systems are already running your life. I mean, whether you want them to or not, we, we talked about Twitter and advertising stuff. That's obvious. And I think people recognize that one, but any decision that's being made today using software or using the assistance of software is already using quote unquote AI. I mean, the, these systems are everywhere and um, they are they are making the decisions that are guiding your lives. And if you are interested in some of the most scary versions of these things, private companies, of course, can't, won't tell you how they're building these systems, but check out a book called Army of None 
which is about autonomous weapons and autonomous weapons decision making. It is prescient and necessary uh, right now to be asking the questions that Kareem is asking. Oh, is, there, is there a way that we can debias uh, what we are putting out there, both in terms of data and in terms of systems? Super important, super important to get on this immediately. And as people may have seen, they, there is now uh, the, the White House just released last week a statement saying that they were going to form a committee on the uh, ethical practices in the AI world um, and form a bill of rights for citizens that is focused on only allowing companies and organizations to um, build systems which are a variety of things. Auditable is one. Debiased is another. Interpretable may be another one. It's a fascinating time to be yeah. to be working on this stuff. Well, and Graham, it's interesting since you know you're obviously of the people on the call the most in this world um, and you know, interacting with this on a day to day basis. It is interesting, kind of hearing your perspective being, yeah, the intention behind these systems isn't to outperform humans. It is primarily to augment and provide, like doing doing the busy work in a lot of ways to bring the information together and present it as, um, you know, Hey, I did all the, I did all the like behind the scenes gathering. Here's the recommendation I have and still leaving their, uh, leaving the choice up to the user. And, and you know, maybe I'm not fully understanding that, but I feel like a lot of the systems we tend to work on are focused less on how can I monetize the user and, you know, get take from the user of the system uh, certain information to, to get them to act a certain way. And instead saying, Hey, I'm going to try to help save you time. I'm going to try to take some of the busy work out of what you're doing so you can more effectively uh, use your skill set and use your talents to, to do your work well uh, without being bogged down by these things that are taking up more time than they should. Yeah. I mean, I would say that generally that's true. There are particular instances where we do have examples of the AI taking people's jobs I mean, right. you know, truck drivers, for instance, want to drive trucks, right? That is, that's a great job. Um, quickly, we are approaching a world in which that job is deprecated for humans and is now the, the purview of, of algorithms. And it is only my hope and, and my optimism, and, and this is not, uh, you know, my view exclusively, there, there are many people out there, that we can use that, I mean, use that displacement as an opportunity to leverage those people's skills in, in other domains. But it's a much less clear path in that case than sort of just allowing hydrocontrollers not to have to deal about with the, with the three megawatt set point every 9 a.m. on their shift. Um, I don't know what to do about it. I, I definitely think that there are opportunities out there to up-level sort of humans as, as, a, as a species using this technology. But certainly, and back to our, our original premise here, there is 100% a need to do that in a way which is ethical and trustable by exposing some of the inner mechanisms of how these systems work and how they make decisions. 
without, I mean, without that, um, we are, we are headed down the wrong path for right. sure. I mean, of course, if anyone listening to this podcast is at all intrigued by the concepts around machine learning, but, but has questions around how to do that ethically, how to do that responsibly, maybe you're, uh, you're just simply trying to learn more, or maybe you have some kind of position where, where you're working with a company or a product that's uh, implementing or considering implementing machine learning and wanting some uh, help on just knowing where to start, what to do, uh, what the options are there. Uh, we'd love to talk to you. We, we love working with machine learning. Obviously, Graham is the, is the main guy to reach out to. <laughs> yeah, of course. But if you, if it's, and seriously, if you have specific questions about your use case, your data or anything, reach out to me. My name's Graham. Email's on the website. Um, I, I, be, I love talking through this stuff. So happy to brainstorm about your, your particular situation. And even if you don't have a need, but, you know, would like to learn more or just talk about things that you're interested in. So, you know, as, as Graham mentioned, AI is already everywhere, right? If you're sitting on your couch telling Alexa or Siri or uh, Google to turn on and off your lights, as I often do, uh, even though it's like eight steps away, uh, you know, it's just uh, the quality of life type thing, right? From there to algorithms deciding whether you should get a mortgage or not, which is like a life-changing or life-limiting decision, right? Um, if, if you have comments about that or thoughts um, or just feedback, you know, hit us up on Twitter or anywhere. Uh, we'd love to chat about it some more and hear your ideas. Yeah, definitely. We would love to hear if you have any thoughts or ideas or things you'd love to hear us talk about next. So you can always reach out to us at podcast at experioinc.com or you can reach out on Twitter at experioinc. All right, Dr. Graham, uh, give us a quick rundown. What do we talk about today? Sure. I think we talked about sort of six main bullet points. One is the sort of fundamental uh, security and protection of not only our data, but our information, the distilled insights based on what we do day to day. Second is the need to incorporate um, a variety of mechanisms to build trust in algorithmic decision-making processes. And we talked about a couple different ways of doing that. Third is sort of the balance between traditional systems which were explicitly programmed and could be explicitly tuned to be trustworthy or de-biased in some way and, and how that is changing and how we need to pay attention and come up with ways of, of accounting for that. We talked fourth about the uh, interpretability of those systems and, and a couple of different mechanisms for de-biasing them. Um, and then we talked about the problem and the, and the majority reason that those systems are biased in the first place because of human, unethical human behaviors over the last course of the human race and, and why, we're, uh, why we have the systems learning off that data and um, how we can alter that now that we have a sort of quantitative decision-making set of technologies, how we, we might be able to actually change some of those behaviors for the better. And finally, we talked about sort of integrating human feedback into our complex systems in order to build user trust and make more effective and ethical decisions uh, that can simultaneously be more profitable in the long run. Thanks for connecting with us today. If you have a complex software problem that needs solving, thoughts on what we discussed today, or ideas on what topics we should tackle next, feel free to reach out to us at podcast at or on Twitter at Experio Inc. 
We'd love to hear from you. Thanks again for joining us and we look forward to connecting with you next time.